Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, a filmmaker, comedian, and, and Josh, I was worried about telling you this. Do you know why? Uh, why is that? Because, Josh, telling the truth is a dangerous business. Honest and friendship don't go hand in hand. If you admit that you can play the accordion, no one will hire you in a rock and roll band. But we can sing our hearts out. Okay, you got to stop or no one's going to listen to the rest of this podcast. Much like they didn't want to watch this movie <laughs> that we're about to talk about. Where, to be fair, Jason, your singing is no worse than the singing in this movie, I think. Uh, Can we get a little dap to Dave for playing a little background piano? Yeah, so did Dave playing some sort of piano app on his cell phone, it looks like. Yeah. Yeah, My portable be, keyboard died. So yeah, yeah. if you had a recorder, we could have used that. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> I was Beautiful. so excited to do that. I figured you would be. Uh, so this season of Awesome Movie Year is about the films of 1987. And we're talking about the biggest flop of the year, which does feature some truly awful, intentionally awful, we should say, music. It's Ishtar, which not only is this the biggest flop of 1987, but really one of the most famous flops of all time. Uh, I will agree with you on that point, but uh, the music is somewhat endearing in a lot of parts of that. That song, the song they do about Ishtar at the end, like I kind of like some of it. It's very uh, yacht rocky. Yeah, I mean, I will disagree with you on that, but I think it's meant to be endearing. I mean, it's deliberately bad, but it's meant to be bad in an entertaining way, I think. Right. And we've talked about Paul Williams, who wrote the songs when we did our Muppets episodes and Smokey and the Bandit. And uh, he was hired by Elaine May to write these songs. And um, as per one of the many, many uh, overruns on budget, uh, she requested that he write full songs, even though they were just going to do snippets so that the actors Beatty and Hoffman uh, would learn the whole songs. Yeah. And I think when we did our... Uh... Muppets episode, I was not a huge fan of the work that Paul Williams had done on those films. And that, of course, is music that is meant to be good that many, many people enjoy. But I was sort of underwhelmed with it. And here, yeah, I found the music. Again, it's supposed to be bad. Yeah, you were accurately whelmed. I, but I wouldn't say so because I think you're supposed to be amused by its badness, right? It's supposed to be funny the way that it's bad. And I was just annoyed by it. So, you know, another one that we've done, Waiting for Guffman, I think that's a good comparison of like music that's intentionally bad. That's amazing. Right. I agree. I love Waiting for Guffman, you know, as we talked about and when we did that episode and I love those songs and I did not love this or really anything about it. Well, I don't think you and Paul Williams are going to be friends because honest and friendship don't go hand in hand. Yeah, that's that's true. Is it friendship? I thought it was some a different... Uh, word in the song there. Josh, you don't know the amount of research and preparation All right. that Dave and I did for that. It is friendship, Josh. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I take it back. I take it back. I did watch the movie and and see that performance though. And then I just watched a clip where they were doing that on the Siskel and Ebert segment. So I will take your word for it though. And this is a bad yeah, this is a bad movie. And it is of uh, course according to you, Josh, but your beloved 
your beloved sight and sound pole, which you hold so dear to your heart, which is the canon of film for you, the only pole that matters, the truth, the law, the Ishtar, if you will, of film poles. I don't know what that means. That doesn't make any sense, really. Sure, but the rest of it did, Josh, and that's what's important here. Two votes for the greatest film of all time in this past poll. Yeah, two votes out of out of thousands. But but yeah, I mean, you're right. And we'll talk more about that. But certainly this film's reputation has become more positive at the time. Of course, it was a big failure. It grossed fourteen point four million dollars on its budget that had ballooned to fifty one million, which is, as you mentioned, with the the overruns in many ways, larger than the initial budget was intended to be, even though this was a high profile project with Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman as huge stars at the time, but was not necessarily meant to cost that much. And it was uh, originally a 27 or 27.5 million budget, so it almost doubled. That's a huge, uh, huge overrun there, Josh. Yeah, certainly not what they meant to happen, but the combination of these stars with their sense of perfectionism or their egos about how they wanted to be presented, plus a director who was herself a perfectionist, uh, writer and director Elaine May, it all added up to something that uh, went way over budget. It was nominated for three Razzies. And of course, we've talked many times about the Razzies being problematic, but they are a barometer of sort of the pop culture sense of what's bad in a year. It was nominated for Worst Picture, Worst Screenplay, and Elaine May won for Worst Director, although she tied with Norman Mailer for Tough Guys Don't Dance, which is another famous failure, actually. I'm sure you weren't rooting for that because you wanted Elaine May to own it because she's a woman, Josh, and you said she should have it because she's a woman. That does not sound like something I would say. (laughs) It was uh, at least partially inspired by movies that Bing Crosby and Bob Hope made mainly in the 1940s the Road to movies, including Road to Morocco, which, uh, of course, is Morocco, where much of this film takes place. And I actually watched a bit of Road to Morocco. I didn't make it all the way through. Was it any good? Nah, it was probably more tolerable than this. But those movies are clearly like, first of all, they have the sense of pop culture from a long time ago that's very reference heavy, where you don't necessarily know what they're talking about some of the time. It's very meta. They break the fourth wall a lot. They refer to each other's careers and whatever. Um, and it's not not just a little bit racist. So there's that as well, which is not shocking for a Hollywood movie from the 1940s that took place in Morocco. And of course, uh, this one is so not racist that they went so far as to have white people play Middle Easterners. So you right. know, that's, that's, a, that's a real move forward in a film, right, Josh? Yeah, not so much. Um, I've seen some people claim that this movie, that Ishtar is a satire on the idea of clueless white people in the Middle East. I'm not sure I'm willing to give it that kind of credit, though. And Josh, just for a little background, um, the fictional country of Morocco is bordering on Ishtar. Thank you for that. <laughs> Ishtar, of course, the fictional country in this film. Although most of the movie doesn't take place in Ishtar, it takes place in Morocco, where they actually went to shoot. Uh, Road to Morocco, the Bing Crosby, Bob Hope film, not actually shot in Morocco. 
I feel like all those Road 2 movies were probably shot in like Palmdale, California. Yes. <laughs> no yes, matter I what it was. Were. Yeah, they had Road to Bali and Road to Hong Kong. And I'm sure they were all shot, yes, on some back lot somewhere. That's absolutely true. So critics were not keen on this film, although it wasn't as harsh a response necessarily as I expected, at least not from all the critics. Siskel and Ebert were were very down on it. Uh, They gave it two thumbs down and they collectively named it the worst movie of 1987 and were very disappointed in everyone involved. And I think that's one of the big things about this movie and, and often movies like this, where it's not just that it's bad or that it's a failure, but that it's a bad failure from talented people who are expected to make good movies and be successful. I feel like that um, we're getting into Heaven's Gate territory here. And obviously they, they call it like Warren's Gate or whatever in regards to Beatty producing this thing. But Beatty had such a contentious re- uh, relationship with critics that um, a lot of people felt like they were just looking to uh, eviscerate him in some ways. And I'm not defending the movie, but I think we saw in Heaven's Gate and in this film either studio or the stories that came out ahead of time about just uh, how off the rails this thing had run um, might have affected some of the opinions or heightened some of the opinions when it came out. Right. And certainly before this movie came out, there had been a lot of reports about the problems on set, the conflicts between Elaine May and Warren Beatty, the budget overrun. There was a regime change at the studio and now executives who were in favor of this film, we're not there anymore, and kind of the kinds of things that still happen a lot on films. And we hear about more maybe now in the age of the internet, and in a way maybe we don't pay as much attention to it now because I feel like you hear this about to so many movies, but this was something that had been so notably disastrous in production that it made it into all of these newspaper reports as well. Yeah, and we talked about David Putnam in our Listomania episode. So he was the one who came in and kind of was that new regime for the studio. And he and Beatty did not like each other. A lot of people Warren Beatty was feuding with around this time. And, um, you know, a lot of, I think both Beatty and Hoffman feel that um, Putnam's submarine in this movie. Right. The idea that this was a boondoggle and he came in and wanted to just dump it, basically. And at the same time, I think, you know, you can watch Siskel and Ebert talk about this film and it's clear that they genuinely didn't like it. And not just because they had heard some bad advanced buzz or whatever. So uh, in his written review, Roger Ebert said, Ishtar is a truly dreadful film a lifeless, massive, lumbering exercise in failed comedy. Elaine May, the director, has mounted a multi-million dollar expedition in search of a plot so thin that it hardly could support a five-minute TV sketch. And Beatty and Hoffman, good soldiers marching along on the trip, look as if they've had all wit and thought beaten out of them. This movie is a long, dry slog. It's not funny, it's not smart, And it's interesting only in the way a traffic accident is interesting. Well, uh, you know, in the past, we've talked about Roger Ebert's evil twin, Roger Biebert, who usually takes the movies to test. But Ebert didn't need Biebert for this one. I don't recall (laughs) that discussion, but I'm going to scour our archives for the discussions of Roger Biebert. (laughs) Whatever we have to do to actually get you to listen to our episodes, I'm all for. All right. 
Um, Hal Hinson in the Washington Post, also not a fan of this. He said, Ishtar doesn't attempt enough to be considered a magnificent failure. It's something far less substantial. It's piddling, a hangdog little comedy with not enough laughs. In making the film, May seems to have found herself in a curious bind. Caught between making the picture sizable enough to justify the presence of its stars and maintaining its status as a cozy table-for-two affair, she's tried to play it both ways. As a result, the movie can't figure out what it wants to be. May's a verbal, not a visual, comedian. She doesn't have the skill as a director to strut her best comic stuff. And her larger-than-life stars, despite their efforts to diminish themselves, can't get small enough for the film. Yeah, I think that's pretty fair. And there was a lot of like hang a lantern on this stuff where it's like Hoffman, you know, the traditional good looking Hollywood hunk Warren Beatty is playing the, you know, the the slouch of the bunch. Right. And he he's like he says stuff like, you know, if I was if I was good looking like you to Hoffman and it's like it's just a little too overt and it could have used some finessing. Yeah, it's all like that. I mean, I realize Elaine May is known for her wit, and that has been demonstrated elsewhere. But to me, it is all of these really lumbering jokes and just that every joke is beaten into the ground. I mean, or even the idea that these guys are bad musicians, they're bad songwriters, they're bad singers. We see so many demonstrations of that. There are so many musical performances and so many songs that you know, it just, it just is tiresome. Like I, five minutes into this film, I was tired of it. I mean, that makes me really happy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, Janet Maslin in the New York times was a little more positive. She said, Ishtar isn't heaven's gate. It isn't heaven can wait either since it lacks the self-destructiveness of the former and the latter's more effortless charm. It's a likable, good humored hybrid a mixture of small, funny moments and the pointless, oversized spectacle that these days is sine qua non for any hot weather hit. The worst of it is painless. The best is funny, sly, cheerful, and here and there even genuinely inspired. There may not be enough of Miss May's readily identifiable comic style in her screenplay for Ishtar, which is also saddled with a busy, unwieldy plot and a good deal of monotony in its middle sections. But certainly there is some of it, and a little of Miss May's wit goes a long way. Uh, I was hoping you would find like those two guys who voted uh, Ishtar is the greatest movie of all time, some quotes from them. So, Oh, I don't know if they're... I, I hadn't heard of either of them, and that poll includes a lot of people who aren't necessarily like uh, commercial critics. It's got academics and filmmakers and stuff like that. So I, you know what, I didn't, I didn't look for whatever they might've written about it, but, um, obviously they, they're not, and they're not the only ones who think that this movie is not just unfairly maligned, but is truly great. Right. We talk about this a lot about these kind of, um, reassessments of films, right. Um, right. over time and Ishtar has been, and that was one of the exciting things about doing this is, we all grew up knowing this as like a punchline, right? And now it has definitely been reassessed by most people, but not by you, Josh. You're just assessing it the same as you did when you were seven years old. Right. No, I had never seen this. And and I was open to the idea, you know, as with Heaven's Gate, which is like this, one of the most famous flops of all time, but has been reassessed by many people as actually brilliant. And I feel like I was open to the idea of this brilliance. And in both cases, I 
did not enjoy these films at all. I think that Janet Maslin is right in that Heaven's Gate has more of this sort of grand self-destructiveness to it. And that even though I didn't enjoy watching that any more than I enjoyed watching this, I could sort of appreciate the insane ambition of what Michael Cimino was attempting to do with it. Whereas here, this is just a crappy comedy. And I just didn't find anything about it funny. The leads are both miscast. Uh, it, it's poorly paced. It's not funny. It's annoying. So you're not a fan? I was not a fan. Oh, all right. Um, I'll give you a few quotes here, Josh. Uh, a few. That's sure. three, Josh. Okay. Uh, from Elaine May herself. If all of the people who hate Ishtar had seen it, I would be a rich woman today. <laughs> I feel right. like she's probably rich anyway. She probably is. And I mean, but that's a good point in that because of the reputation that this has, people would dismiss it without necessarily seeing it. Or I'm sure at the time, people who read about the turmoil on set were like, oh, that must be a disaster and they wouldn't bother seeing it. Right. And I think that these two quotes also back up these points. Dustin Hoffman, I like that film. Just about everyone I've ever met that makes a face when the name of it is brought up has not seen it. I would do it again in a second. Yeah. And Warren Beatty said there was almost no review that didn't in the first paragraph deal with the cost of the movie, which again is something we talked about in the Heaven's Gate reviews also. He went on to say, that was an eye-opener about the business and about the relationship uh, of the entertainment press to the business. Ishtar is a very good, not very big comedy made by a brilliant woman, and I think it's funny. Yeah, I mean, it's not. I think that's part of the problem, as, as, as mentioned in these reviews, is like it should be kind of this small-scale thing. And because of its budget and the fame of its stars and the reputation of the problems, it became like this outsized big deal you know, you watch those Road 2 movies and like, yeah, Bing Crosby and Bob Hope were big stars, but those movies are clearly just them kind of goofing off. And that's what this would have been. I don't think with this script, it could have been a small thing. There's too many huge set pieces, arms dealers, CIA trying to kill these guys. Like there's no way as this iteration of this movie that it could have been small. And I do agree that uh, maybe even though she wrote it, this wasn't the right project for Elaine May to direct. Right. And I mean, one of the problems on set, I think, was when it came down to directing those big set pieces, like the gun battle that's at the end of the movie, that she didn't, she was kind of out of her depth on that. And and that's a fair thing. All the, although, on the other hand, it, you know, film is collaborative and there are plenty of directors who scale up from a smaller film to a bigger film. And part of the way that works is that you have people you have a crew who know how to make that big stuff work and and support the director so that seems like maybe things devolved at this point that that didn't happen yeah i think you're right because um elaine may wanted this her way and she's not the first director to do that but you know i was reading about her and vittorio storaro who is the legendary cinematographer who shot this thing and um, a lot of the time he was looking for the best cinematic shot and she was looking for the shot that made the most sense for comedy and it kind of clashed and we know that she and Beatty clashed over it. And of course, in the editing room, I love this, Elaine May, Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty all had their own editors make a, a cut of this movie. So it's just, um, you know. Uh, big Hollywood stars who all wanted it their own way and um, it did not work out this time. Right. And I think that's though part of the problem where if you don't have the main collaborators behind the director, then the director isn't going to be able to achieve 
what they want if, you know, if she's someone who doesn't have the experience with these kinds of scale of production and she needs that backup and she's not getting it. Well, but also if she's saying that this is the way it has to be and those choices, like you're saying, it's a collaborative medium, maybe she needed a little be she needed to be a little more open to other ideas as well. Right. And that that may be true either. I mean, whatever it is, like obviously I felt like it didn't succeed. <laughs> Whoever is responsible for the ultimate result, it was bad. So were you reassessing this too, Jason? Had you seen it before? Nope, never seen it. Uh, but I did watch it for this podcast. Good news. So did I. <laughs> um, Dave, this was one of your uh, your childhood viewings with your mom. Is that right? You got that right. Yeah, I hadn't seen it since then, though. So it was basically a first time watch for me. But uh, yeah, this is one of those movies she used to run in the room and put on like whenever it was on TV or something like that. And uh, it was it was a big favorite of hers. And uh, according to your letterbox, which is not go for Jason, um, mm. you're uh, quite a fan of this as well. It's hilarious. I mean, you know, we'll, we'll we'll talk about it more. But I mean, this is right in line with some of the dumb comedies that I love. So, you know, I would agree with that point from yes. Dave. Uh, <laughs> Jason, any other uh, background details or all the craziness that you want to talk about? I mean, there's so many of them, right? Like, um the idea that they were supposed to shoot this big sequence on a hill and they scouted it for days and days and days. And this is in Morocco. And then Elaine May decided, no, we should shoot this on a flat uh, piece of land. And so it took them, they had to like plow a square mile of land to make this thing flat. Um, There's just so many just crazy stories about this thing. Yeah. All that insane effort for something so insubstantial, I think is, is what's, frustrating here too well i do i want to just say elaine may you know um uh co-wrote heaven can wait baby's vehicle uncredited rewrite on red baby's vehicle uncredited rewrite on tootsie hoffman's vehicle so they all felt like hey man we got to give uh this director like a real shot to do something here and and baby even said like i was trying to give her a gift and uh, it worked out in the opposite way Right. I mean, they were trying to support her. This was her fourth film as a director, but her previous films hadn't necessarily been hits and they were trying to kind of support her and boost her career. And yeah, it definitely achieved the opposite result. I don't know. I mean, we weren't, you know, we weren't really alive. I mean, we weren't really alive. We weren't alive at all for those other movies. So, um, you know, and between me and you, we've watched all three of the other movies. And um, I don't know. I mean, you know, is it the idea that they weren't hits or that they weren't huge hits and that she was trying to just get to that next level as like a commercial, um, you know, commodity? Right. I mean, maybe that's it. The idea that she had made these more modest films and they felt like she deserved this bigger career and were trying to kind of help her get there. That may be it. And you also wonder, obviously, she's a woman if, you know, she didn't get those opportunities that she might have based on the success of those other three movies because of that fact. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, and this is a period where there were very few women directors, especially in Hollywood. I mean, when we've talked about films directed by women from these eras, oftentimes they're from outside Hollywood. But I I think there was something, and I, I don't remember this detail now, but that Elaine May was the first woman to sign like a contract with a major studio female director since Ida Lupino, which would have been in like right. the 50s. So definitely still a rare thing in Hollywood. 
Yeah. So there was a lot of just stuff where it's like the studio wanted to fire me, but Beatty's the producer and he's like, he wanted to fire her, but he didn't want to actually fire her because it would look like, you know, he failed or that he wasn't supporting her. And it just like everything just kept ballooning out of control here. It did. It did. So uh, we'll come back then and talk more of our general thoughts on Ishtar. Dave, take us out with a little music. I'll add it in post. <laughs> Dave is not prepared to do that. <laughs> yeah. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1987, we're talking about the biggest flop of the year, Ishtar, which I hated, really. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give you a point to start with, Josh, and then we can go from there. because. I think once they got to Ishtar, that's where the film failed. I actually really thought the first half hour reminded me of like a lot of Woody Allen stuff. It was kind of fun. And it's about these two, you know, lugs trying to make it as uh, songwriters. And you get into this nice flashback of how they met and how they started collaborating. And I thought that was really the best part of the movie. It was funny. It was smart. It was grounded in its own way, right? And um, once they got out to Ishtar and the CIA, and you know, this guy's trying to kill this guy, and we're trying to kill that guy. You know, it, it, they got outsized. But Dustin Hoffman originally turned down the movie because he thought that the movie should have never left New York. And I agree with him. I think that's the way to do it. As these two kind of struggling songwriters who have to make their way in New York, just like uh, you know, all the people we saw in Nashville having to make their way in Nashville. So. Do you think that would have been, I mean, it's a completely different movie at that point in time, but that seems like it would have been um, a much better avenue to take. Yeah, I mean, it would have been a different movie and maybe it would have been a better movie. Certainly, I think it would have been the kind of movie that Elaine May could have directed better, right? Without this big action stuff, if it was just this more modest comedy about these two losers in New York City attempting to start their careers. But I, like I said, five minutes into this, I was like, oh God, I don't think I can handle this. Like just the, the, the characters are annoying. Their songs are annoying. And I mean, if it had stayed in New York, I think they would have spent more time singing and performing, <laughs> at least when they were running around with the CIA, they weren't singing their awful songs. You know, but, you, you said that they were completely miscast, but we know both of these guys have very you know, not just great actors, but they got comedic chops, right? You know, we've seen Hoffman and stuff like Wag the Dog and I Heart Huckabees, and we've seen Beatty and Bullworth and stuff like that. So where, do you think it's just too big of a, of a style of movie for them to, you know, go for that? And you would have wanted some something more along the lines of like, it's the 80s, so a Chevy Chase and a Dan Aykroyd type thing? Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I would have enjoyed that version, but the whole time I was absolutely thinking of exactly those two people. Like, why does this movie not star Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd? And I, yeah, you're right. Like Hoffman and Beatty can be funny. I think it's more understated comedy, perhaps. It's also that they're miscast in these particular roles, which I realize is on purpose, the idea of casting them against type. And like you said, Warren Beatty as the kind of uh, shy you know, awkward guy who can't get the ladies and Dustin Hoffman is the suave ladies man or whatever. But I don't think it works. I don't think especially Beatty completely fails at playing a convincing version of that character. 
a Texan, a Texan, no less. You know, we've seen him do much better uh, kind of uh, Southern style work in uh, Bonnie and Clyde and and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. I might have laughed more at Bonnie and Clyde than this film. And I don't blame you. The Gene Hackman scene alone is just the brilliant piece of work in Bonnie and Clyde. But Gene Hackman, I'm sorry, Gene Wilder scene alone. Gene Hackman yes. is also in. I know, right and now. he's very good. But the yes, Gene Wilder scene is right. is the funny stuff. Yes, but. the Gene Wilder scene that they're where they kidnap him. Um, but I think the other thing about somebody, people like Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd, is, and maybe this would have gone against Elaine May's style as a director, and of course also being a writer, and I'm sure being careful with the words that she chooses. But they're both good at improvising, and if something like this isn't working they can kind of riff on it and make it funnier. And I don't know. I feel like there, there would have been a better shot at this being an actually funny movie with people like that in the rooms. And it feels like we're picking on Elaine May, just like, you know, maybe it felt like you were picking on Michael Cimino in the Heaven's Gate episode, but it's not, you know, this is a group effort, whether it was the studio that helped tank it or anything else. Like, for instance, uh, Beatty was dating Isabella Gianni at this point in time and cast her as this like Middle Eastern temptress, uh, this leftist, if you will. And she is a legendary actress, but she is completely miscast in this film. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not only, as you said, of course, is she not Middle Eastern, but she has no charisma here. Um, she's beautiful, but I never really got the idea about how obsessed these two guys were with this woman. They didn't have, I mean, if she was dating Beatty in real life, like she had no chemistry with either of them. Um, and just so many of the like running jokes in this movie fall flat. Like there's the whole thing where they keep mistaking her for like a teenage boy because she's dressed. She's either got this kind of head wrap on or she's disguised in some way. In no way does she ever look or sound right. like a teenage boy. And not only is it like kind of from a distance, like initially, like, oh, oh, wait, no, never mind. Like they're face to face talking to her, like on top of her. And it's just, I could not get past this as like, I mean, I guess these characters are meant to be kind of dumb, but it was beyond that for me. Yeah. Um, I wanted to tell this story of something I researched. So there's a point where, um, Baby's character based on, um, you know, it's like a secret code, go ask for a blind camel, right? Um, and, they, and the guy Muhammad will know what to do and help you get to safety, right? So they were looking for a blue-eyed camel for some reason. And I think it's Paul Siebert, the uh, like production designer. He found a blue-eyed camel and he got a price for it at like a bazaar or, you know, whatever, a, a market out in the open. And he thought like, okay, well, I'm going to go look for other blue-eyed camels and then come back and get this guy to drop his price down because I'm going to tell him, well, I found these other ones for cheaper. And he did not. And he went back to get the original blue-eyed camel and the guy had eaten it. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't really know why they would need that either. Like you said, because the camel is blind, you don't see its eyes at all. So maybe that was some bit that they had to cut because they couldn't get the blue-eyed camel. I don't know. I don't know either. I will say the one, you know, you're talking about how a lot of the comedy doesn't work. The one guy who I'm glad we get to talk about, because I don't think we've ever talked about him on Awesome Movie Year, and just a genius of comedy and comic timing. Charles Grodin makes the most out of his part here. He does, and he plays this CIA agent who tries to recruit Dustin Hoffman's character and then tries to 
kill them. <laughs> and yeah, he's the best thing in this movie because I feel like he has the exact right tone. He's giving this very dry performance as this kind of exasperated CIA agent who has this very casual attitude toward just killing Americans and really anyone at all. And, you know, I think he's the only one who's in a movie that maybe could have succeeded as like a political satire, which this otherwise completely fails to be. It's so interesting because I mentioned Wag the Dog, which is a huge success as a political satire. And then I think, you know, in the 90s, Elaine May was nominated for an Oscar for writing Primary Colors, which I also think succeeds as a huge political satire. Right. And this just, I mean, there's definitely a lot of political stuff here. The idea that this Amir of Ishtar is facing rebellion from within his country. I mean, Isabella Johnny's character is supposed to be one of the leaders of this like rebel faction trying to bring democracy or maybe communism, right? to this country and the CIA as represented by Charles Grodin's character is trying to back the emir but they're also having issues with like Libya and all this stuff that was very politically relevant at the time and it's just so poorly executed it becomes a rigmarole and you're like wait why is this map so important that they are all chasing them for it and what's going on with this guy and why don't these people like each other it does become a little too uh, just entangled, entrenched with each other. And you and I were talking about movies that work like this. I rewatched Bananas by Woody Allen, which is very gag heavy, but I think works better than this. I, I brought up Tropic Thunder. I really like that. And and you had mentioned The Interview. the uh, Which Rogue is vehicle. not a good movie. I just It reminded me of The Interview, but I don't think The Interview succeeds on that level. Either. Yeah, Tro- Tropic Thunder is the best of that bunch. But I think Bananas, um, if you're looking for something that works in this uh, kind of feel. Then wag the dog. That's the other great one, I'd say. Right. I mean, I was thinking of the interview also because I could imagine like a modern remake of this starring like Seth Rogen and James Franco that would also be terrible, but that that is like the kind of thing that people like that would want to attempt and and fail at. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, like I said, I'm with Dustin Hoffman. Like I like this idea of these like mismatched struggling songwriters trying to make their way through New York City. That would have been, that would have been enough for me. Yeah, I I mean, again, I I don't think I would have enjoyed that. I do think that it would have been maybe a more effective use of Elaine May's talents. And and maybe part of the reason that this went in this different direction is what you were talking about and the idea that Beatty wanted to give her this vehicle to further her career. And in order to do that, you have to make a bigger movie. You can't just make a movie about two guys in New York hanging out in bars and stuff like that. But um, I think even in that segment, there's so much that doesn't work. Like, the, okay, the structure of this movie, the pacing of this movie, right? We start and we have Hoffman and Beatty's characters. They're this established songwriting team. They're attempting to, to get their career going. They have this like disastrous gig and they're going to a bar afterwards and they don't want to talk to each other and they sit apart at the bar. And this is like, what, eight minutes into the movie or something like that? And Hoffman then has a flashback to the beginning of their partnership. <laughs> like, why did the movie not just start with that? It's yeah. so idiotic. I mean, I didn't mind it because I thought the flashback was very funny. But um, I understand had you done that sequentially because you come out of it and then they're talking to the agent played by Jack Weston, who's also probably the other best thing. In yeah, he was amusing as that. He's kind of underused, but his few scenes are good. Right. So, you know, another Woody Allen movie I thought of was like Broadway Danny Rose. It felt like a kind of combo between those two to me. Um, yeah. 
uh, Dave, uh, you know, enough of us trouncing this thing, Dave. Tell us, tell us why uh, Josh is an idiot. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I, I don't know if this is like a failure or a feature of this movie, but like, I think that the the tones are maybe what is the problem for someone like Josh, who just really hates it. I mean, I think it really does go from buddy comedy to just straight up slapstick, spoofy, dumb, silly, almost a parody of espionage spy kind of thrillers. And I think it succeeds in both of those, but maybe if it stuck to one thing and didn't, you know, didn't switch gears throughout the movie, like maybe it would be better. But I actually do agree with you, though, Jason, like I would have preferred a movie of just them as struggling songwriters. I think that's a great idea. And I think that that is where most of the fun, like that bar scene in the beginning, like to me, that was just so funny. And more of that would have been great. But I, I liked a lot of the stuff though, once they got to Ishtar and all that, it just felt so slapsticky, which is something that I love, but is a completely different movie. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is that like, whatever it's attempting, it's failing. Like mm. it fails at multiple different kinds of things. I don't think really there's anything about this movie that is successful, except maybe for Charles Grodin's performance. Well, yeah. And I'm saying that the stuff in New York worked for me. So. Right. Right. Did you find the blind camel funny? No, <laughs> I agree with you. I mean, that's, that's what Dave's talking about. The big slapstick stuff. This camel won't right up. It won't move when it's supposed to, it won't go where it's supposed to go. You know, it's just, it just became a little too much. And then, you know, they're hiding behind it while like the CIA is sending in helicopters to kill these guys. And it's That's like great. The, the CIA can't kill these two dudes hanging, hiding behind a camel, you know, like, it's amazing. It's, it's so much. stupid. It's so it's, dumb. But I will say also, like, I really love Warren Beatty here. Like I, I get that it's just such like dumb stuff all around, but he, I, almost everything out of his mouth, I was laughing. Yeah, I did not feel that way. <laughs> at yeah, all. That's what fair. about okay, Dave? As as a Jew, another thing mm. that really bothered me, like there's a running joke that that Warren Beatty's character cannot pronounce the word schmuck, right? Hilarious. And <laughs> I understand that there's certain like Yiddish words or whatever Hebrew words that are common among Jews that maybe are difficult to pronounce, right? If you couldn't pronounce challah. With that mm -hmm. sound, right? I get that. That's a joke in a lot. I literally watched a movie, a stupid movie, like the day before or day after this, that had a joke about someone being unable to pronounce that sound. And it was not good, but at least it made sense. But <laughs> shh is a sound that <laughs> is common in many English words, is in the title of this movie. Yeah, and he can clearly do it. He puts, you know, he does the two of them separately. But uh that that's the thing. It's so heightened to the level of stupidity and some of my favorite movies are very heightened to the level of stupidity. I, I, I enjoyed the callback to it late in the movie where he calls yeah. someone a smuck after all that. But I yeah. took it as him just not knowing the right way to pronounce it. And then it became he couldn't pronounce it after that. Yeah, but then Dustin Hoffman explains known, yeah. it to him. Right. He should have known at that point. Right. Yeah, it's just it's not. I think that's the thing is like it's a not funny joke that then is repeated over and over again. And that was how I felt about most of the humor here. I think of Chris Elliott and Get a Life looking up and like starting to drown from the rain. Like, obviously he can look back down, but he's he's stuck looking up and he's all the rain's getting in his mouth. Yeah, you're talking about Dumb and Dumber style comedy, <laughs> but it works much better in projects like that. 
Yeah, yeah. Or I mean, something like get a life is just completely surreal and that's not what's going on here. Like this, this is too grounded to work in that manner. I think I took it as pretty damn surreal, honestly. I did see, and I'm in between you guys because I felt the beginning, the grounded part worked, and then it just got so broad, it just became too much for me. Like I might have preferred it had it become a more surreal vehicle. Yeah, I, I I think so too, but I also just don't think that that's really what May does. So should we uh, should we rate this thing out of five blind camels? Sure, I was going to say five hot tunes. <laughs> <laughs> there are zero hot tunes in this film. Well, I gave it two and a half hot tunes because like I said, it gave, uh, I enjoyed that first half hour. I enjoyed some of the performances and I enjoyed some of the music. So it's two and a half um, for me and uh, Josh, go ahead and submarine this baby. Yeah. I'm going to give it one and a half blind camels or hot tunes or whatever. I just really dislike this and it was i i'm glad i saw it in a way because it's so famous for its uh, failure but i it's clearly not the humor for me as as we've seen i in multiple episodes of this podcast when dave picks lowbrow <laughs> comedies that i can't stand oh josh is so erudite he can't deal with it <laughs> all i'm saying is that this is not my genre so uh dave how would you rate this I mean, I was going to go three and a half, but I think just to raise our average, you know, yeah. I'm going to go five. I'm going to go to four. How about that? Jason, sing us off. Telling the truth is still a dangerous business. I'm singing the same song that I sang at the beginning. Honest and friendship don't go hand in hand. We'll be back after this with the legacy. Josh is going to take a gun and shoot his brains out. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1987, we are talking about the year's biggest flop, Ishtar. And whether you like this movie or not, clearly it was a failure that had an effect on Elaine May's career, at least. And she never directed another narrative film. And uh, you wonder, because I think she could have after, but I do agree with you, Josh, because it's like, it's interesting if you look at the the main three players, right? Like right after this, uh, um, you know, Dustin Hoffman wins an Oscar basically right after this for Rain Man, right? And Warren Beatty's doing stuff like Dick Tracy, which is a big hit right after this. And Elaine May, is pretty much not back on the scene until the mid nineties when she reteams uh, writing scripts for Mike Nichols and gets going again. And she's had a storied career and won a Tony just a few years ago. Um, so it's interesting that, um, I mean, not interesting per se, but maybe a little too obvious that the guys covered much quicker <laughs> than she did, but also they're actors and she directed. Right. I think it's a combination of those two things is that, yes, it's harder for a woman to recover from what is perceived as a failure. But I think it is also harder for a director who is considered to be like the driving creative force, you know, even though, as we said, it's collaborative and there were a lot of issues here. Usually the director is looked at the one as the one who is responsible if a movie has failed and so it's harder. Whereas an actor is like, well, you know, you played the part, you did the job that you were there to do and the movie didn't work, but you did what you could. And, um, 
I think also Beatty and Hoffman were super, super famous at the time, and that made a difference as well. But, um, it, you know, I wouldn't necessarily blame Elaine May, who clearly did not have a good experience, whether she was proud of the ultimate result or not. I mean, it sounded like the production was probably not enjoyable. I would not blame her for not wanting to go through that again. I can see that. And I mean, you know, you, you, you don't want that. You don't want to just be like browbeat to such an extent that you're just a punchline. Like maybe she needed a break from all this. And plus she and Warren Beatty were such good friends. And it seems like this caused a schism between them for years. Right. So like, there's a lot of shrapnel that you take on on something like this. Right. And as you said, she still has had a very impressive career. She uh, was nominated for an Oscar for primary colors. She co-wrote the birdcage. Um, she still works occasionally as an actor. You know, you mentioned Woody Allen. She was in Small Time Crooks, which is, you know, she's very entertaining in that. She's uh, unfortunately was also in Crisis in Six Scenes, which is one of Woody Allen's worst things. Um, and even just like a couple years ago, she was on The Good Fight playing Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah. And so she also had an Oscar nod for writing or co-writing Heaven Can Wait. And the she's got a National Medal of the Arts, a BAFTA, an Honorary Academy Award, the um, the piece she got a Tony for was the best actress, uh, in the Waverly gallery, which was written by Kenneth Lonergan. So, I mean, you know, she's, and obviously her improv, uh, team with Mike Nichols is not just legendary, but hugely influential on the world of comedy as we know it. Yeah. And she did return to directing to make a documentary, a TV documentary about Mike Nichols in 2016, but that is the only directing credit she's had since. Yeah. And American masters for PBS. Um, so, you know, uh, we've talked about Hoffman and, and Beatty on this show before. Um, I'm still bummed that Beatty's last movie was town and country. I I didn't see that, but I, I don't know if he's just like, you know, kind of like Jack Nicholson decided it's time for him to just enjoy his life and not deal with movies anymore. But um, I would I would love to see something from him again. He did make one more movie after Town and Country. I don't know. It was 15 years later. He made Rules Don't Apply. Which he directed, right? He directed and starred in. Yeah. Uh, it's very, very bad. And he was clearly, it was one of these movies where he was trying to make it for so long that he had clearly way aged out of the main role, but insisted on playing it anyway. And uh, yeah, that's that's very bad. But um, I didn't see, but the other thing that he has done since then is he has this weird relationship with the rights to Dick Tracy. Yeah, that, he's always doing stuff about Dick Tracy. Right? Yeah, every 10 years, I think it is, he has to produce something related to Dick Tracy in order to hold on to the rights. Even though it seems like he has no intention of actually doing anything with the rights, he just doesn't want anyone else to have them which is enjoyably petty. And so he's made these two specials for TCM that they kind of indulge him on. And I haven't seen them, but they're supposed to be these like bizarre, like meta things. And the last one was like a year, like maybe I think it was in 2020, maybe. And it was had to be done under COVID protocols. So it's like Warren Beatty on Zoom talking to Warren Beatty as Dick Tracy on Zoom. And it sounds insane. I'm all for that. I like the insanity here. Um, but come back, Warren Beatty. Give us give us something. Have you ever seen Reds? I haven't seen Reds. No, I mean, I'm sure it's great, though. Yeah, I got to see Reds, too. That's like a big missing uh, piece of the Beatty puzzle for me. Josh, uh, as you know, Dustin Hoffman's still working all the time here. Uh, he was in a movie uh, called Sam and Kate with his son, Jake Hoffman. Did you see that? 
I didn't. That was kind of a small, like, uh, direct to VOD, I think, mostly film. And he's, uh, yeah, he's he's working all over the place, even in small films like that. And, uh, you know, the Meyerowitz stories with Noah Baumbach. He's, all, he's so awesome in that movie, too. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's definitely working steadily. He's sort of the opposite of Beatty, who never was very prolific, even at the height of his career. Right. You look back at the Beatty uh, catalog because you think he was such a huge star for so long. And part of that is, you know, he was a producer and he had all these like tabloid romances and everything. Right. He's like a a legend in that like kind of classic Hollywood sense. But um, yeah, Hoffman's always working. Uh, I, I never watched Luck. Did you watch Luck? The uh, HBO series. I think I watched some episodes of it uh, and reviewed it, and I wasn't a particular fan of it. Yeah, so I didn't see it. Uh, a lot of horses died on that, which I wasn't happy about. But, um, you know, a lot of horses die in horse racing nowadays. Also, not happy about that. Coming up for him Kung Fu Panda 4, hooray. Not really. Uh, Megalopolis, the uh, official movie of Awesome Movie Year, I think, at this point in time, <laughs> the Coppola movie. And a movie called Riff Raff with uh, Brian Cox and Jennifer Coolidge about a, a convict who goes straight until his uh, old family comes back to town. And uh, the three of those together, that could be exciting. Yeah, that could be fun. And I mean, Megalopolis is one of those things that either will be amazing or it will be the flop episode of Awesome Movie Year 2024. We're really yeah. excited about Megalopolis. Yeah. Uh, Isabella Johnny. Mainly has worked in French films. I I was looking through her filmography, and I believe she only ever made one other English-language movie, which is the 1996 remake of Diabolique, randomly. uh, The remake of the film directed originally by Henri-Georges Clouseau, who we Mm -hmm. have talked about here on Awesome Movie Year. And uh, you know who directed? Who's another director that we've talked about on Awesome Movie Year who directed the remake of Diabolique? Well, it wasn't Rob Reiner, so I can't really say. It was Jeremiah S. Chechik, director oh, of National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. That seems like a strange fit. Yeah. Wow. A lot of weird combos going on there. But I mean, she's a she's a very prolific actor in France still. Uh, I, I still have strong memories of her as the star of uh, Queen Margot, the very sexually explicit French period piece that I watched in high school French class. Oh, boy. Yeah. That's exciting. It was. She's the star of Possession, right? Yeah. Possession was um, 81, was before this. But yes, right. I mean, I think that's what, in, especially in the US, like, people know her for that a lot. Well, well she was at the time, she's won five Caesar Awards uh, for Best Actress in France. That's a record. She was the youngest Best Actress nominee at the time in 1975. She has two Oscar nods. Uh, I think Possession was one of, oh no, it was Camille Claudel in The Story of Adele H. So, I mean, you're talking again about an extremely uh, well-regarded actress who just is uh, miscast in this one, you know? Yeah, she really is. And I don't know if she's done comedy in France, but that doesn't seem like her forte. We saw Carol Kane in here. who A lot of love for Carol Kane on Awesome Movie Year. She and Johnny were both nominated for Best Actress in 1975. And of course, as we know from last season, they lost to Louise Fletcher, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah, Carol Kane is great. And I saw her name in the opening credits and I thought, oh, good. Carol Kane is in this. I like her. And she had like three lines. She, she has really nothing. Yeah, she has nothing to do. And so does uh, Tess Harper, who played the other girlfriend um, and, you know, who played Jesse Pinkman's mom, Diane, on um, Breaking Bad. But the, the movie I keep telling everyone to watch with her was her first movie, Tender Mercies 
which she's great in. And Robert Duvall gives like an all time amazing performance. But um, she had uh, she had an Academy Award nomination for Crimes of the Heart for Supporting Actress. And uh, she's also in No Country for Old Men, which we covered on this very show. All right. I have to see Tender Mercies. I haven't seen that. You got to like see this- it. You yeah. got to see it. It's not a great movie, but it's one no. of it's a good but it's a good movie. It's a good movie with one of the best performances I've ever seen. Wow. All right. Well, that is a good recommendation then still. Uh, yeah. You want to talk about Charles Grodin? We got to talk about Amazing Charles talent. Grodin. He's yes. so funny. Uh, just died a few years ago or, you know, I don't know exactly. I think it was when. two years in 2021. Yeah. Yeah. It was 86. Um, you know, I mean, you want, we can talk about him in the movies. We could talk about what a great guest he was on like Letterman. He was always so funny. He's got so many highly regarded movies. Uh, from the 80s, like Midnight Run. And then, of course, in the 90s, he's very, very funny in a lot of family, you know, more family-friendly fare like Beethoven. He's just hilarious. He's great. He's a one of these actors you give anything to, like we mentioned Gene Wilder, and he's going to maximize the comedy of it. Yeah, and not only a great talk show guest, but he was also a great talk show host, which uh, I think was maybe the first place I saw him, that and like Beethoven, <laughs> I want to say when I was younger and yeah. uh, knew him as that. Uh, and I enjoyed watching his, his late night talk show, um, which aired, I think wasn't, he was after Letterman. He, he was the host of that show before Tom Snyder took it over. Uh, I didn't know that. I knew he was on CNBC and he was a commentator for 60 minutes too. He wrote eight books. He wrote three plays and he won an Emmy for outstanding writing in a variety show for the Paul Simon special in 78, which Chevy Chase and Lauren Michaels also wrote on. But uh, Josh, Clifford? I haven't seen Clifford. And that is one of those, I bet I would hate it, but it is definitely one of those movies. Whatever year that is, we could probably cover that as a flop because that's one that was just loathed and was a huge failure and now has a weird cult following. Yeah. Cover it as a cult movie. So, by the way, I was I had it opposite on the talk show. He took over from Tom Snyder after Tom Snyder left that post Letterman show. But I definitely watched that. I think either when I was in middle school or high school or something, and uh, enjoyed seeing him on that. I'll tell you what, you got to watch with him. And with the second time we're bringing up the Muppets in the Great Muppet Caper, where he's you know jousting Kermit for Miss Piggy's love. He's so great in that. He's just great. We love Charles Grodin. He is great. I'm glad we got to see him and to talk about him and and see him in this film because really, I like I said, I think he's the only thing that I enjoyed in this movie. Well, Jack Weston, we both said, was very good. Um, he was in the Thomas Crown Affair, Dirty Dancing, which was the same year as this. What a what a year for him, right? Yeah, that's uh, quite a quite a double feature there, Ishtar and Dirty Dancing. Mm, nobody puts Ishtar in the corner. Nope, got it we, wrong. We, we definitely did do that. <laughs> Josh, before we get out of here, can I tell you one quick story? Please. Will you, will you allow me to do that, Josh? I will. Thank you. Uh, and uh, I'm just going to read it word for word. It's probably copied from IMDb or Wikipedia. In one of Gary Larson's The Far Side comic strips, captioned Hell's Video Store. And I remember this comic strip. Do you? Uh, I, I mean, we we talked about it recently, you know, before this episode. And I was a huge Far Side fan, so I probably did see it, but I it didn't register with me so much. So the entire store is stocked with nothing but copies of Ishtar. Larson later apologized, saying, when I drew the above cartoon, I had not actually seen Ishtar. Years later, I saw it on an airplane and was stunned at what was happening to me. I actually, I was actually 
being entertained. Sure, maybe it's not the greatest film ever made, but my cartoon was way off the mark. There are so many cartoons for which I should probably write an apology, but this is the only one which compels me to do so. I mean, I think that actually goes to what we were talking about earlier, the idea that everyone just assumed this movie is terrible without bothering to see it, and that people are like, oh yeah, Ishtar, what a piece of crap, and they don't really know anything about it, they haven't watched it, probably couldn't even tell you what the plot of it is. Well, you had a hard time telling us what the plot of it is. It's getting real convoluted. You have to admit that. <laughs> I do. But I do think you're right. It sums up uh, a lot of the uh, uh, points we've been making on this show. So thank you, Gary Larson. So that is Ishtar. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Sing us a terrible song online and on social media. Tell us the truth on social media. Nobody does it on Twitter or Facebook. We are awesomemovieyear.com. At Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. I'm Jason Harris Comedy or J Harris Comedy on all those things. You can find this comedy as a website and go for Jason as a letterboxed person. Thank you for not <laughs> singing all of that. Uh, you can find some old things from me at joshbellhateseverything.com. Also at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on, it's not Twitter, it's X, you know, come on, get with the current lingo. And at Signal Bleed, I don't like calling it that, I should just not. I mean, the website, if you, not that I use Twitter as a website, but it's still Twitter.com. Well, it's also X.com, so oh. it's, it's mm -hmm. both at this point. But uh, anyway, whatever, you can find me there for now and also at Signal Bleed on Letterboxd. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And check out my bad music at ByDavidRosen.com. <laughs> Dave's music is much better than Rogers and Clark. I will. Thank you, Josh. <laughs> Jason doesn't agree. Jason, what is in our next episode? Josh, we're going to Cannes for the Palme d'Or. Uh, Under the Son of Satan, which I know nothing about. I know only slightly more than nothing about that. So that'll be a good discovery for both of us. Tune in next time for But Josh, we have to get, we have to ask you a question before we get out of here. This is important. You Are you going to sing it? No, I will just ask you. You have to rewatch one movie, Ishtar or Heaven's Gate. Well, Ishtar is shorter. So clearly Ishtar <laughs> is the answer to that. Uh, I think, uh, I don't know if that's the case. Tune in next time for Under the Sun of Satan. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.